0: The Class of 2001 was hailed
1: with a storm of lighting of fury on their entrance and exit from West Point. Graduating 101 days before the tragedy of 9-11, the Class of 2001 served as junior military officers during the initial phases of the War on Terror and increasing positions of influence over the next 20 years. Bound together for four years in school and together in service to our nation and their communities, These are the stories of those graduates as we look through the gray.
2: On this episode of Through the Gray, we'll be speaking with Brad Hunstable. Brad's hometown is Granbury, Texas. While at West Point, Brad was in Charlie Company, 4th Regiment, Cowboys, and Fox Company, 2nd Regiment, Zoo. Brad participated in the Fellowship for Christian Athletes and the Finance Club while at West Point. Brad branched Adjutant General and served in various capacities around the world, working jobs for both the Army and the Department of Defense. Brad left active duty in 2005. Brad worked as an engineering development manager at Hillwood Real Estate until 2007. In March of 2007, Brad founded Ustream, a cloud-based video streaming platform. In 2011, Brad became the CEO of Ustream. Ustream was purchased by IBM in January of 2016. In December of 2018, Brad founded Linear Labs, a smart electric motor company designed for the next generation of smarter energy utilization. April of 2020, Brad founded and served as the board of directors for Hayden's Corner. Hayden's Corner was established to address critical issues related to children. Brad earned a B.S. in Engineering Management from West Point in 2001 and a Master's in Business and Administration Engineering and Industrial Management from Ohio State University, the Fisher College of Business, in 2005. Through the Gray has its first sponsor, Urban Industrial Northwest. Urban Industrial Northwest is owned and operated by my childhood friend, Greg Hostetter. Greg and I grew up playing in the woods, and hitting each other with sticks. I joined the military, and Greg joined the trades. We both love the outdoors and the Pacific Northwest. Please visit his site and see the amazing work he and his team are creating. Urban Industrial Northwest is a furniture and fabrication company specializing in handcrafted products using heritage lumber deconstructed by architectural salvage companies from structures dating back to the late 1800s to early 1900s. Everything from their powder-coated hardware to their top-selling reclaimed wood desktops are carefully constructed by their team in-shop to create one-of-a-kind statement pieces for your home and office needs. Check them out on their Etsy store, Facebook, and Instagram, or give them a call at 360-703-6936. And mention this ad for a 20% military discount on your order. And to top it off, shipping is free straight to your door nationwide. Urban industrial Northwest, giving wood a third life from tree to structure to an awesome piece of furniture. Morning, Brad.
3: Hey, man. Good morning.
2: So, like we do with every episode,
3: we open with why West Point? <laughs> Is that the end of the question?
0: That's <laughs> why the question. West Point? Why West Point? Man, you know, I grew up in a little small town in Texas called Granbury. My dad, we, we had a pretty modest upbringing, you know, but I always, probably like all of us, Want to do something different, you know this little town I was in was a little bit of a sleepy town. My classmates didn't seem to my high school classmates weren't exactly global in terms of their vision or their or their desire to have an adventure you know I just felt like I wanted to do something different and i uh also had two brothers and sisters and or I had a brother I have a brother and a sister. And, you know, in some ways, I, w- I was the oldest and I was probably the overachiever and got the better grades and all that. And we, again, we were modest. And, and one day I was flipping through. I, 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 didn't, have, I didn't come from a military background. My, my, my grandfather was, did serve World War II on a Navy sub. He was a, uh, a sonar technician of some sort, but he never talked about it. And so I never really was exposed to anything in the military. My, my siblings, I suspected, needed more of my parents' help financially. Um, then hopefully I wouldn't need. And so one day, literally, I was flipping through a Princeton Review, those big books. You remember those college books? Starting to think about this stuff, and I I discovered this. I flipped to this this place called the U.S. Air Force, the United States Air Force Air Force Academy, and I was like, "What in the world is this?" Um, I'd never heard of it. And I remember just looking at their uniforms and just being amazed at the what what the mission was. And I went to – so I wanted to go to the Air Force Academy originally. And I, went, I wanted to go to – and, I, and by the way, again, obviously, it was free. And you go serve in the military. And I like the discipline. I was like, wow, this really sort of fits my psyche. Um, and it's inspiring. And it seems exciting. And, and so I went to the Air Force Academy in the sophomore year through a, a program called Summer Scientific as a high school kid. And stayed overnight for a week. And, and West Point has something similar. I forget what it's called. And I was just blown away and excited about it all. And, and frankly, I wanted to fly. That was my dream. Um, I re- when I was a little kid, I wanted to be an astronaut very, very badly. Tried to go to space camp. I even applied for a scholarship, which I didn't get. Um, we couldn't afford to go, but, I was, but that was my dream. And go to Summer Scientific and did that was, again, blown away. But, you know, as you move through the process, everyone said, well, you should apply to all the academies. So I researched a little bit about West Point and a little bit about the Naval Academy. I was fairly certain I did not want to go to the Naval Academy. I did, Nothing about being on a boat inspires me at all. But I applied, and I applied to West Point as well. So I uh, went through the admissions process and did not get in the Air Force Academy. Um, I think my eyes were bad. Um, and I got what's called a Falcon Scholarship. I said, hey, you can come to this other place for a year, and then you can come. And I was like, man, um, I want to, I want to, I, I think I want to fly. And so my congressman at the time was getting congressman Stenholm and I bugged him to death to try to get me a nomination to go to West Point and the Air Force Academy, all these places. He knew I wanted to go to the Air Force Academy. I had a pretty thick file. And out of the blue one day, he calls me on the phone as this high school kid and was in DC. And I never talked to the guy. I just emailed his staff and he's, he calls me and he says, hey, Brad, this is congressman. His name was Charles Stenholm, who's a Democrat out of Texas. And he said, Look, I don't know if I'd get you in the Air Force Academy, but if I can get you in West Point, will you accept we accept the nomination and, and and accept the, you know, to get in? And he's like putting me on the spot like right there. And I hadn't thought of t- I'd researched West Point. It was my second choice? But I hadn't researched it nearly like I did the Air Force Academy. Obviously I hadn't been. And the only time I'd ever flown ever in my life was to the Air Force Academy at that time um in Colorado. And so uh, I didn't know what to say and I paused and I just said, yes. And the next day I got my letter of acceptance in the mail and I was off, you know, off to West Point and and, and again, going why it was, uh, it was, it was the adventure and I, I, I like Star Wars and the story of good and evil. I liked the fact that, that, you know, there's this concept of developing yourself and this, you know, Brotherhood of of people, and um, and then of course, you know, serving your country, and then and, and then on a personal level, you know, if I could go get a a, a you know a, a you know, government paid scholarship, it freed up the opportunity
1: for my parents to help my brother and my sister more. You know, it all just kind of kind of made sense. So, did it live up to the height? Well, if you ask me today, probably
0: different answer. If you'd ask me the day we graduated. Um, <laughs> Man, I look back fondly at West Point and what I learned and, and what it did for me in my own development, what it did for me in terms of my, in my, even my business career, you know, and then, you know, at the time at the Academy, I was probably, I mean, like many of us, I was definitely ready to get out of there. Probably was a little bit more cynical, not, not on that extreme end of completely hating the Academy, but I was. You know, there's some things that bug me and, and I was young and naive and thought I knew everything and all that kind of stuff, you know, but no, yeah, I look back and what a special experience. And if I had to, I man, I think about this sometimes, if I had a chance to do it all over again, I would have seized that experience a lot more. You know, my daughter, just this last week, we took her to college. My my oldest daughter, Mary Harden Baylor in, in Texas and my biggest piece of advice to her was: you get an opportunity, just seize it, learn and absorb it, and, and don't worry about the other stuff. Don't Worry about that, and you know, I look back and I wish I'd done that more at West Point. If I'm being honest, I think I could have seized what an incredible opportunity we were all gifted with. It's it is something I'm, I'm very fond
3: of. You were a an engineer major, engineer management. <laughs> And you did Fellowship for Christian Athletes and you did the Finance Club. So you were, you were
2: relatively active. What opportunities did you feel that you missed out on?
3: When I first got to West
0: Point, I was so gung ho. Um, and I feel like I wasn't performing very, very well through Beast and through Plea Beer. Then I sort of turned it off a little bit. Um, you know, I went through, and I don't know if anyone else went through this, but that whole slump of, well, all my friends are at other colleges having fun. and. Um, I had my wife now, April, and I were dating. We had a long-distance relationship. That was really hard, and, and, and from being Canada, distraction. Um, I was a little, I was immature around that kind of stuff. I think a little bit. When I say what I didn't take, I, it'd be more one. It would be the education and the knowledge. I wish I just really absorbed it all more. Two, you know, I hit into a mode, cow, and first a year, a little bit more. Do do what I need to do to get by. I mean, not completely. But there was an element of that. I know I could have I could have done a lot better. And forget even the, the results. I'm just talking about just absorbing it more. And then on the on the leadership side, you know, it's when we're playing, playing quote, playing leadership at, at West Point. You know, I I I didn't take it as serious as I should have. And until you're in front of real men and women, you realize how serious it is. And you know, I'm again I'm not I'm not a bad leader or anything like that, I don't think. But I uh I could have. I just there's so much to absorb. I could have absorbed it more and taken it to a whole nother level, and just just really reveled in the experience more. I think is what. And, and frankly, then get to go. We'll talk a little part. Then goes what I branched and all that. I would have just. I would have just probably done it a little bit different.
3: I think over the course of these interviews, there's not a single person I've talked to yet that said that they got everything that they could have out of it. It's like walking into uh, an all-you-can-eat buffet. Some people stuff their plate. Um, some people kind of picked and choosed, and no one really knows if they picked right, uh, but they know there was a lot to dig into.
1: Yeah, a
0: lot to dig into, limited plate size, and I probably ate the same thing every single time. <laughs> it's, it's <laughs> <tried new laughs> things. But, you know, uh, yeah, I, I suspect that's the case. It's like West Point, and uh, maybe other people like this, You, you know, time has a weird opportunity for you to put perspective and appreciate it more. And I think it's probably like anything. You know, there was, there was, there was a lot to choose from. Um, and I probably would have chosen different, probably would have chosen, done more. Um, and I mean, even I'm thinking, I'm even talking to, I mean, to be so specific, history class. I would have leaned in. I'm so much more into history than I was back then. Really leaned in, not just doing well enough to get by to get, the, get a grade, really trying just to just appreciate the beauty and learn from it, trying to gain wisdom versus a grade, I would have done that more. Even that that philosophy class we took plebe here, man, I thought that was like the dumbest thing in the world. Like, what in the world are we doing in this class? And now I love philosophy. Uh, part partially by you know, everything that's happened in my life in the last few years, but I would have engaged more emotionally into it and intellectually than
3: and then sort of just trying to, you know, get by just to get, you know, past the time. So you come towards the end of your West Point career. Talk me through Branch choice. Yeah, that's that's, that's part of that whole story. When I got in, I wanted
0: to fly a helicopter. I wanted to fly Apache because I couldn't fly planes um, or jets. You know that was uh, seemed like a pretty, really exciting thing for me. And whenever we took that flight physical, my eyes started getting worse and worse and worse at the academy, to the point where I, I was out by the time we had to go through the flight physical. I was outside qualification. And I don't know if it's, it was staying up all those nights with the lights on, you know, late at night at West Point, it was genetic. And then back then, if you recall, to branch um, aviation, you could not go get LASIK or PRK surgery. It wasn't approved. And I think, from my understanding, I think it might be now. I could be wrong. Uh, but it definitely wasn't when we were there. And so when that happened, I, I, I was like, man, I came here to do that all this other stuff does not interest me at all, you know. Infantry. I mean, it does actually now, if I'm being honest. But, but back then, I was like, I don't really want to do that. Um, and, and nothing was. You know, so I was cynical, and that's part of what was, I was cynical. And what ended up happening, me and, and I can't remember who it was. I'm drawing a blame, Me and another guy were kind of both, you know, soaking in our own crud, uh, feeling sorry for ourselves about 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 that. He, he had had something happen. We both put finance and ag. As almost like a joke, um, and I'm, I'm, I'm disappointed <laughs> I did that at the top, and I didn't think I'd get enough grades to even get there. And then I think I put um, signal and intelligence, and then a FA after that. And lo and behold, he didn't get any of those. I think he went FA, and I got I ended up not getting finance, and they branch me AG. I, honestly, I didn't even know what it was. And so the good part about it was. I saw sort of the business side of the army, which was kind of cool and interesting. The downside of it was, you know, was it wasn't nearly as high speed as I thought I could could have done something really, really cool. Particularly, I think I would have been fascinated by intelligence and signal. given my background, Um, those two would have fit me perfect. And the young, kind of naive, sort of a little bit immature kid in me came out in those moments, and that's what ended up ended up branching. And you know. I'm proud I worked hard for the army and proud of it, but um I didn't do anything crazy exciting. Um unfortunately.
3: So talk me through the transition from your military service to Ohio State.
0: Yeah, so I was stationed at Fort Riley and they moved me to Columbus, Ohio. There was a little post little little uh processing center there that the AG guys do that I went to. And again, I didn't choose it. They that's where they sent me. And so being in Columbus, Ohio, I'm not from Ohio. I'm not from Columbus. If you've been to Columbus, that whole town revolves around Ohio State, and it's kind of hard to be there. It's kind of being in, in Dallas and not liking the Dallas Cowboys. Probably it's even more intense. You can't you, know, you can't like the Columbus Buckeyes, uh, the host Buckeyes. And so yeah, I was going to get out, and I knew I wanted to do business, something in business. I didn't know much about it, and I decided to uh, you know go get my MBA at Ohio State. I was there already. They have Fisher College of Business as a, as good. Pro, it was, was a well-regarded well regarded program. I knew I needed some baseline because I need. I don't even really know much about anything business related. Although I feel like I, I I always had an entrepreneurial mind, I mean I am an entrepreneur mindset. There's just no doubt about it. Which which is a, in some respects it's is not ideal for the military. In other respects, it's actually fantastic. So I knew I I had that in my blood, and and I was there and decided to, to, to while I'm there, and starting a family, I'll I'll go to Ohio State and get my
3: MBA. The transition after getting your MBA and then getting out of the military, how'd that go?
0: When I got out, um, I didn't know what I wanted to do exactly. Um, I started liking, my career has kind of been an interesting one. Um, I, start, I started being fascinated by real estate. You know, you think back in that time frame, the market was pretty hot. It was before 08. And this, I, I, Mark Hildebrand, who was a, the colonel of the 937th engineering group that I was in, West Point guy, um, started working for a company out of Dallas, Fort Worth, called Hillwood, which is owned by the Ross Perot Jr. And um, I made some contacts with those guys and was able to get a job at, at a real estate development firm. Called Hillwood with no experience, and frankly, the only reason they hired me—I mean, we're talking one of the top develop- real estate development firms in the country. Um, I'd never done it; I was long removed from any kind of engineering mindset. Well, I got in because of West Point—I mean, the connections to West Point—and me just telling them, "Look, I will sweep the floors, whatever you need. Let me learn and just absorb." And they—they—they they, uh, <laughs> they bought it or whatever. So they let me in. Um, luckily, there's a bunch of West Pointers that work for them, and, and it, it really was it was a good thing for me. And I started working for them. And but before that, you know, I was going through the, through the career fairs. and I just didn't I didn't want to work in manufacturing on the line. I didn't want to go into some kind of sales role right out. I, I wanted to project manage, and I love the concept of building. Um, which is what what I ended up doing was building. Developing master plan communities. Again, you think about the kind of, I'm kind of like the general manager of, you know, I get to one moment, go work with city council and get it approved. The next moment, work with an engineering group who actually does the engineering, but I had to project manage them. To the next moment, talking to the construction guys and a guy on a dozer, make sure they don't take out a certain tree we wanted to keep. To work with the landscape architects to be creative and how we can create an experience. It was a really, really fun job. Super interesting. Satisfied that entrepreneurial bug that I had, even though I wasn't quote unquote an entrepreneur, there was elements of it that very much
3: were entrepreneurial that I that really enjoyed. And then you take a great job with a great company, and you make a huge step, a huge risk. Talk me through Ustream. Yeah.
0: Sometimes I wonder why and how I did that, but you know. Uh, well, part of it, part of it was in two thousand eight. The real estate market, nine, if you remember, started going downhill. When the economy starts to turn, new property, new development, is slows down significantly. And so, I knew Hillwood was going to slow down. And then the question would be, what do I have left to do? And then would they lay me off and all this sort of stuff? I don't know if they would. But but that was part of it. The other part of it, I was always a little bit of a computer geek. That's so why signal I think would have been cool for me to branch, and I didn't. But, but when I was a kid, I ran a, a bulletin board service, and my dad was always you know buying good computers, and so I self taught programmer. Um, that Ada course we remember we took, and I aced that. And went, I mean, I was I love that world of the internet emerging, and and, I was, and so I always stayed involved in it somehow. I decided with a couple different guys to sort of mess around and build a website and start a little thing on the side, and it just absolutely exploded. And so I was looking at the market in 08, as much as I love Hillwood, fantastic culture, deeply great relationships that I built with all the leadership there, you know, and then this thing just takes off. And I was looking at myself, I just had my second kid, Hayden. and And I thought to myself, look, I'm young. If I go bankrupt, it won't be that big a deal. I want to do something big. I got this real estate thing figured out, but it's kind of now it's just it's doing the same thing over and over, which I don't like doing. And look at this thing, just, just kind of early signs of something really special. YouTube had just sold for a billion dollars. And I'm looking at it going, all right, well, let's maybe, maybe I'll take a shot at this and, and decided to, uh, I didn't know anything about fundraising and venture capital. And in fact, I didn't know anything about building the internet company. And meet and another guy named John Ham, who was a West Point guy also. And our third co-founder is a guy named uh, Jula Th- uh, Farrow, who was our, our CTO. I left Hillwood and packed up my bags and went to Silicon Valley and said, I'm just going to try to figure it out. And told my wife, I'll be back when I figure it out. Lived in a hotel for six months. And it was interesting. And as I was quitting Hillwood, um, this was an important step. You know, I went to Ross Jr., who I have a tremendous amount of respect for. He's an incredible leader, an incredible person. And I said, look, I'm gonna take a shot at this deal. And I, you know, I don't know. You know, I think I'm young enough to if it fails, i am young enough to recover and I just, just tell me to go swing for this. Told him the idea, and frankly, he think he totally grasped the concept and that was okay. And he said, Well, in fact, he told me he didn't grasp the concept. But um, he said, Look, Brad, I believe in you and um, I'd like to invest. And I said, Oh no, no, it's okay. You know, i do not need to take, you know, it's okay. And he goes, No, you're gonna need some money. And he pulled out his checkbook and wrote me a two hundred fifty thousand dollars check. He said, "Send me the documents when you get a chance. I'd like to be your first investor because I know nothing about what you're trying to do, but I'm I'm betting on you." Gave us the first check that we then allowed us to go, you know, go to Silicon Valley and try to try to figure it out. So you know, all worked out.
3: Wow, how did you navigate that transition and learning venture capital, learning the process of taking? An online, really web-based service, public.
1: A lot of my intuition came from those early days
0: as a kid running running what's called a bulletin board service. So before the internet was around, people had modems. You could call into someone else's computer, and you had a sort of front-end login. Uh, And there were other companies that did that at grand scale. Think AOL, think CompuServe. There were others. And I had a, and even before those guys got big, I had a small version of that. So people could call into my computer, and I eventually could take like ten calls at a time. They would get some little little front end. They could play games. They download files. They could chat. They could send messages. And again, was what was called a bulletin board service. And I was 11, 12 at the time, and I did that till about eighteen through through high school, and that gave me just a lot of sort of interests and maybe some intuition around how to create an experience where people can um, enjoy something virtually. And I always stayed in researching and playing with different applications in that world. And so, so I feel like I had a natural intuition around that to a certain extent. Um, I was lucky enough to have a very technical co-founder who was Julia Ferrer, because you can't do it without him, I truly build scale and, and hired the, the engineers. Or help me hire, help us hire the engineers. He was key, and then it was a uh, just a massive culture shock going to San Francisco and building in Silicon Valley in 2008 or whenever it was. And so that was interesting, partially because you know I was in the army and been you know, going to West Point, being in the army, and then being at Hillwood, Hillwood was still was very suit and collar or suit and tie, very very, very efficiently ran very, again, sort of a bunch of military guys in there to a, a pretty different mindset in Silicon Valley. That was interesting. I had to learn how to communicate with a different audience that I've never really had a lot of interaction with. And, and frankly, there was a lot of, in the early days, there was a lot of cynicism towards me and judgment being from the army and what do you know? You don't know anything about this world. And... We had to navigate that. And so, luckily, we found a a venture capitalist who placed a bet on us. And then, one of those things, like, behind, once you're successful, no one cares. But in the early days, navigating all the anti military sentiment and from Texas, you know, you're redneck. I I heard all these things while I was out there, very judgmental, which by the way, they associated all those things as not intelligent. Um, Army, Texan, dumb. And so that was the way to navigate all that stuff. And then, so, I had, to build, so I, I had to build relationships, I had to build trust. And that really forced me to get out and hustle and figure just, I mean, will I hustled, meeting everybody I could meet with from lawyers and developer relations on the legal side to investors to the executives that knew the space and sort of understanding the trends. I, did, I think I did a pretty good job. I mean, I was still am friends with everybody from Jack Dorsey, and a lot of these internet founders We all kind of grew up at the same time. So that was another beautiful part as we were entering a new wave of internet companies. And it was a, a smaller community than you may think. And so as I had a, a, a little bit of capital and, and, and started to get a little bit of a brand, suddenly I had access to all these other great internet pioneers of, of this era and, and you know started learning from them.
3: Do you mind if I dig in a little bit on that building trust, not looking desperate, not looking like a shyster or a a snake oil salesman? How did you do that in that community, especially with what appeared, the way you discussed it, a couple uh, notches against you? I think
0: humility. You know, I stood out in the sense of the classical entrepreneur at the time came from a computer science background. and some of them were very specific personality type that these VCs looked for. And and I came in and, you know, was just very humble. And, you know, that can work to your detriment in a sense of some of these, some of the personas that they looked for was just a very smart thing, Steve Jobs. You know, kind of cynical, just aggressive. Uh, I'm smarter than you and I'll outwit you and the kind of mentality. I'm I'm this great engineer. And here I was. My approach was just much more of, you know, being kind and humble and asking, not afraid to ask a lot of questions. And I got smarter as I did that. People, a lot of people to open up to me. Some of the smartest people in the world who may have some of those facades were people that I needed information from to learn from. And if I went in combative and like I knew it all or too aggressive, you know, I think that those people shut you out. And so I went in with humility, then just really focused on. Trying to appeal to their emotional side of, you know, just someone trying to learn and really work hard, and that didn't work for everybody. Uh, but there were enough people that were willing to build a relationship with me to help guide me. And you know, I think if I came in guns a blazing, probably would not have
3: worked. So you had pretty good success with UStream. You were there for ten years. Talk me through the the tail end of that time.
0: Yeah, it was a long ride, which we you know most. I think the average exit time for most startups is eight to 10 years. So we're, we're, we're in the bell curve. We had originally been a, a company that we had this idea that, you know, YouTube was out and it was recorded video. Why is it or not? And I'm oversimplifying this, but why is or not a live version of YouTube? It was almost that simple. And technology architecture wise in those days, they're completely different of how you accomplish those. And there was nothing like that in the world. And in fact, to do any kind of live streaming really required very expensive equipment, very high-end software that wasn't even all that good. And it didn't scale. And so that was the problem we set up to tackle. And over originally, we went down the consumer internet path, so truly more like a YouTube. So we were doing like celebrity stuff and sports and you know, everything in between, churches, trying to build a platform for people to broadcast and get information out. Tons of just amazing stories. Charlie Sheen literally went crazy on Ustream and blew us up. There may millions of stories like that, which is longer than we can list here. But then at some point, we were, we were confronted with having to go raise more capital or go and go head-to-head with YouTube and record a video. And I just didn't think I could pull it off. It seemed very ominous to go fight Google. Because they get the best engineers in the world. They get more money than, than anybody. So much traction. But that was the next phase that what I was going to have to do. And so I made a decision rather than... And I don't know if I could even raise the money. I wasn't sure. And I needed hundreds of millions of dollars. And I was skeptical. We, could, we, we were at a point where we could pull that off. And so I made the decision to pivot the company. We knew we had this great technology. We are getting some traction in the enterprise space that was really interesting where we can make money versus ad revenue. And I pivoted the whole company towards enterprise about four years before we sold. And that was really painful. I, had, I, mean, I laid off like 50 people in one day, a uh, mass restructuring. That was one of my biggest leadership challenges in my life. It's how do you keep an organization that I was telling and for so many years, go this way, go this way. We got all the answers. This is exciting to. Nope. Okay, we're going to go this way now. Um, by the way, I need you to stay. And by the way, we we got to lay off all these people, your friends. And um, oh, by the way, it's not nearly as flashy and exciting necessarily. as consumer space. That was hard, and I was away from my wife. So part of what was been challenging too. I was going back and forth between Silicon Valley in Texas. I never, my wife never wanted to move there, so I was going back on the weekends. So I would fly out on Monday. I would take the six a.m. flight out of Dallas. I would get up at four. I'd land and be in the office at eight thirty on Monday, and Silicon Valley. Well, There's enough time to do that, and then I was flying back on Thursday night or last Friday, Friday night, and then I wouldn't get home till two in the morning. And then I was doing weekend soccer stuff, so it was just a beating. On top of that, so when we pivoted. So we pivoted to inter- this enterprise model, which is different. Meaning, you went from an ad model, trying to get uh, providing a free service, let anybody do it, to okay, not anybody can do it. But you got to pay. You know, by the way, we're going to tailor the product differently for companies to use this kind of these features. So then the last part of that was really restructuring, rejiggering the leadership team, rebuilding the culture in some ways, and then building the relationships to ultimately have an exit to IBM, who we sold the company to. The good part about it, I mean, at the end, I mean, the, I feel very proud that we made that turn, an incredible team, two of them, my former CFO and one my director of VP of engineering at the time, software engineering, works for me. Now, again, we got to an incredible point, and then IBM gave us an offer. And at the time, I was just tired of traveling. And, you know, I was just like, I don't want to do this for another 5, 10 years. And so I decided to, to sell the company.
3: So you sell Ustream to IBM. You kind of take a short pause, go back to Texas. And then you start tinkering with your dad.
1: Yeah, I took some time off. You
0: know, newfound liquidity and I, I didn't grow up rich and so you know it was uh it was it was weird uh i had to learn a lot about myself and just that but the uh you know, you know my wife went through all the same stresses i did in the background so we, we that was really you know, i'd spend a lot of time with my kids be at home it was really cool and then me my dad went to africa south africa and went on a hunting trip and you know we i, I saw poverty I mean, there's poverty. I mean, I'm in America and Iran, but I'm talking, you know, when you see poverty, there's another level. <laughs> when you go to Africa, it just broke my heart. And it got me thinking just about human suffering. And I'd become close to a group called Charity Water, which was trying to solve clean water for places like Africa. And at the time, they had told me like 2 million people, which is still, I think the number actually gone up. 2 million people a year die from a lack of clean water. And I was, and I was like, what? this day and age 2 million people die a year it's awful and so i just got back from africa i saw poverty i'm talking to this clean water or uh, charity water group and my dad um hadn't seen him a ton because i'd been obviously west point in the army and then i was in Silicon valley so you know not that we had grown apart or anything but you know we uh, just it was getting older and, and i was like, why don't we do a father-son project my dad's a really smart guy he's a classical inventor really incredible Truly a true build and invent things with his hands kind of guy. And um, in fact, he used to, our, our car garages as a kid were always his laboratories. He jokingly says, I didn't know car garages were for cars because he builds things in his lab. That's what he, he's always been like that. And my dad had done the nuclear electrical designs for the nuclear power industry as a, when, I was a, when I was a kid. I think he said he's worked on 89 of 120 nuclear power plants in the country or design the systems, you know, very complex electrical systems. And so I'm looking at Africa, I'm looking at clean water, I'm looking at human suffering. And I had this idea and I asked my dad, I said, what if we could take an old timey Texas windmill, which I grew up with, seen them everywhere in Texas, and somehow get usable electricity out of it. Now, Texas windmill, that is different than a wind turbine. Windmill, most people don't realize this, it's like what you see on a farm and they're used to pump water right? They take very low wind speeds and they create this vertical pumping motion and they pump water for cows. You know, if you're in the middle of a nowhere and you can't get electricity, how do you water a cow? Well, you put up a windmill, they drill a hole and it pumps water out of the ground. It fills up a little basin and now your cows can survive the Texas heat. And wind turbine, is something different, right? A wind turbine is those, what we see on TV with the big blades, massive three-bladed, white usually, right? Go really high in the air, get to very high wind speeds with a strong force, you know, hundreds of feet in the air. They look like they spin very slowly, but they're taking massive amounts of wind speed and turning it in a tremendous amount of torque. And they gear it up and get very high speed to get usable voltage. But my idea was, okay, well, let's, can we take a windmill, like on a farm, bring those to Africa, give somebody clean water, and give them usable electricity with one device? and my dad told me at the you know at the time the conventional wisdom was you, you can't do that you can't get usable it's called usable voltage from these very low speeds it's just not possible in fact if you go to like these windmill companies they say don't ask us if these generator electricity they don't like, they're not for that they're for pumping water so don't even ask and i remember thinking well dad look you're getting older i haven't seen you in a while you know i got time now what if we try to solve a crazy world problem like this and he's like well it can't be solved but like, man what if I could? Kind of what I'm saying. Like, let's. Everyone says that we can't. Let's see. Let's see if we could. Because if we could, I could take this device. I could go to. We could go put it in a village in Africa. I'd give someone clean water, which we know for a fact people die from lack of clean water. But you could also bury a hot water heater, put a battery in there, save that electricity that you generated. They could, someone could go wash their hands before meals. Um, you could get hot water quicker than having to go haul firewood from two miles out. We could put LED lights all over the village. A lot of these shanty towns don't have any power. So lit by candlelight and stuff. And so to me, I was like, we could change vast parts of the world. All right, let's try it. And so we, we spent some money, built him a little shop, bought all this equipment. And we, you know, we got to work. And I should say he got to work. I was just picking up whatever tools he told me to pick up. Through that process, uh, he made a discovery in a new type of electric machine. That originally was a linear generator, which it's hard to describe over audio. Uh, but we created a linear generator, which is why the company is called Linear Labs. Which then led into an entire portfolio of electric machines. So we have linear motors and generators, linear and rotary. And so, from once we solved it, I realized we may have a commercial opportunity. And rather than go this nonprofit route, because it still needed a lot of development, a lot of money to go get it to where it needed to be. I don't. I didn't think I could raise money for a nonprofit to go take on a risky technology investment, but I knew I could for being from a venture capital world. I knew I could for a company that could generate revenue, and so uh, I put a bunch of money in and then used some of my contacts with Silicon Valley to raise an initial round and built this company that I'm now running called Linear Labs.
3: And there's a couple parts of this I want to uh, dig into. Is one. The focus on Dallas-Fort Worth, or as you're starting to talk it, Fort Worth-Dallas forward, and then two, the small engine, small generator side. Can you talk me through those two elements of uh, Linear Labs?
0: Yeah, I mean, on Fort Worth, I mean, the suburb I grew up in, Granbury is a suburb of Fort Worth. And so when I was in Silicon Valley, it always bugged me. I love Texas. I love Fort Worth. And I was building a company not where I grew up. So there was something that always just kind of didn't sit well with me on that. And frankly, I, and also I didn't want to travel. <laughs> I'm like, I'm not doing the weekend thing at home anymore. Um, so I decided to do Fort Worth and Fort Worth has a lot of, as I was researching it, I, I made it regardless. I made the decision. I'm doing it Fort Worth. I don't care. Um, I don't want to, I'm not leaving my family anymore and I want to stay near my parents. And so, but Fort Worth had a lot of natural things that made it interesting potentially for a company like mine. We build the F-35 here, Bell Helicopter builds, builds helicopters here. So this is really robust, advanced manufacturing ecosystem around aerospace and Fort Worth that made it very natural to start a company like mine here. So that, that was good. And then two, uh, you know, that whole, you know, I'm, I'm gonna try to help this area from here, I'm, uh, why don't I do something here in my own hometown. So that was very key. And, and then on the, the small motor stuff, we originally, you know, 50% of the world's electricity passes through an electric motor. And so the motors are in everything, right? If you think about it, they're in, obviously people think of Tesla, they're in cars now, mobility, they're in smaller vehicles like golf carts, they're in um, air conditioners, they're in pumps. There's probably in your house, there's probably a hundred motors. I don't, make, I don't know what the number is. From everything from your ceiling fan to your refrigerator, right? All the way to very big stuff um that are in oil and gas and big industrial applications and then of course you got the whole generator side every motor is a generator every generator is a motor right they're just the opposite it's another big market and so we speaking of the salad bar problem we had the salad bar problem significantly when we started the company which is where in the world do you start i i use the salad bar analogy as you walk up to the salad bar you have a small plate but everything looks good you know what are you going to put on your plate it's very tough 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 Sounds may not sound that hard decision. That was a very hard decision. Where do we start with all the different ways we could go? And the decision we made was to start first on smaller motors, particularly one industry called what I call light electric vehicles. And the reason we chose that market over, because I get this out all the time, when are you going to be in a Tesla? Well, the problem with the automotive industry is it takes like five to eight years to even get your product in any of these vehicles. The, the design cycle is very long. On top of that, the automotive industry in particular is notorious for just beating you down on margin, right? And it would take an incredible amount of investment dollars to go and pull that off, whether you if you could. There's a lot of, a lot of dead bodies, for lack of a better word, startup dead bodies who have tried to go after the automotive industry first. And so I was like, okay, that doesn't seem that smart. So what, what kind of framework could we use? And I came up with a framework that I like to call pain and velocity. To try to give us some sort of structure on how we made the decision and pain, meaning what industries do we solve a real pain point for? Which the implied part of that is that they'll pay a premium. If I solve a pain point for you, I'll pay a premium to make that pain go away. And so that, that's a good thing from a startup. And then velocity basically means I can pay you quickly. I can get to cash quickly. The opposite example of velocity would be going into a bell helicopter and trying to get into aviation something like in a a bell helicopter they have tons of electric motors they could benefit maybe they have pain but they don't have velocity it'd take 10 years to get in a a bell helicopter because of all the regulatory environment all the investment a slow-moving you know company in a slow-moving industry it's very very that'd be very very difficult for a product like ours and when we looked at it this light electric vehicle market which i define as small like little motorcycles small mopeds up to very small cars or like utility, small utility trucks, golf carts, recreational vehicles. They have very quick design cycles. So there's velocity and then they value torque, which is kind of our primary feature. Very, we build very high torque machines. Torque in the mobility application means you can go up a hill better, you can carry more weight, you can accelerate, things like that. So they, they, they value the torque and amongst other things. And so that's the path we went down. There were other reasons. We're doing smaller stuff first, as you get into bigger applications, you tend to go more higher higher voltage, which means that there's a much greater need for, or much more likely chance that someone could get killed if they touch the wrong thing. So there's a, another level of safety complexity that you have to make that investment early on. And I'm just picking these things up and moving them around, small motors, I can pick them up and walk across a shop and not have an issue on getting big material handling equipment, which again is just another level of investment. That's where we started. And then over time, you know, I hope is the, I mean, I've quoted right now big stuff, like 2.5 megawatt things that are, will be as big as a room. So the technology scales up. Um, eventually we'll get there, but we, we chose to start with smaller stuff first.
3: So you're starting basically round two with your second company, but rather than online and digital, you're going to manufacturing. What was the learning curve for that? <laughs> Still in process massive massive
0: difference couldn't be this is where my career kind of wound around i mean it couldn't be more different and, and not only that we're building manufacturing there are there, there's two there's three components to an electric motor system one is the motor itself then you've got this whole other part of it that you need which is the electronics which is a, kind of a whole other world and then you got software that sits sits on top of that so it's a very complex system development and um, going from pure software where the cycles are very fast, you know, you're just changing code, you're pushing things fast, you're, you're, you can map it out and code into it. This was a different thing. And first was the R&D part, which was, we're talking what's called multi-level physics. And so you, we bring in all these different forces. So think thermal forces, which is heat. You've got mechanical forces. You've got uh, magnetic forces, you got know, electricity, and you know, all these things on, and on, so you got to go through that whole process and oh, by the way, you got to figure out how to build it. Elon Musk, I think has famously said, it's easy to build one. It's hard to build 10,000. So software doesn't have, you know, there's no manufacturing equipment in software. There's no supply chain logistics and software. So there, there was just a whole nother aspect of complexity there's zero chance I could have pulled this off early in my days. I mean, the only, the only reason I even remotely have a chance is because I, I cut my teeth at Ustream. And then I'm through that process is smart enough to know I need to hire a lot of smart people that are way smarter than me on this stuff. So I brought in early Tesla people, people from general motors, people who have built motors before designed motors before. And so I brought in, you know, really industry experts, if you will, uh, that, but it, it couldn't be, It's it's, it's just, it's so much different. I mean, I, and frankly, I'm I'm still learning every day.
3: And so you're, you're building velocity. You're staying in in Dallas, Fort Worth. You're getting time with your dad and getting more time with your family. And then COVID hits. Yeah. Things change.
1: Everything changed. I mean, 2020 was a year
0: that uh, was not easy uh not easy for a lot of people but i'm not the only one obviously but it was, it was just a, it's a tough year um we have this startup you know that i'm trying to figure out in this very complex industry then you have covid which made my kind of world even more difficult you know think of all the supply chain disruptions and you know you can't build motors on zoom you, know? you can't do Hardcore engineering, product rapid prototyping on Zoom. So that was challenging. All that fear, and then, and of course, as we talked about the beginning, you know, then probably obviously the the most awful part of that is we lost our son, and
1: you know, 2020, tragically
3: And so we had families under a lot of stress, but really the kids who were pulled out of school, separated from their friends, and limited contact with the outside world except for screens and they're struggling on their own while their parents are struggling on their own too. And we do our best as parents to provide structure and support, but it's, it's, it's not always enough.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's, it was a, uh,
0: think about it. 2020, not that I want to get
3: political, but you know,
0: COVID was awful for so many people, right? Awful disease, awful virus. Awful thing to contract, particularly for high risk. Awful way, you know, to to pass away. I mean, what an awful, heartbreaking thing, and just horrific and, and, and unfortunate and awful. I mean, there's no other way to put it. And you know, flip side of it all, disrupting society like we did, and disrupting kids is is, is awful too. Right? You know. The world is different than when we were kids and then when our parents were kids and our grandparents were kids. And, and you know, the shutdown of, of, of the global order was a really, really, really tough thing. It's one that I would argue and submit to you has massive unknowns and unintended consequences and, you know, reverberations that will last for many, many decades. Um, and all the way down to,
3: you know, youth development. Really tough deal. In a horrible day and a temporary mistake that has long-term consequences, Hayden takes his life.
1: Yeah. yeah it was a um, story around Hayden. You know, we, um, December 2020 or December 2019,
0: he had asked for a computer monitor. A lot of his generation were playing video games, you know, Xbox and PlayStation and P- on the PC. Particular game called Fortnite, which a lot of parents probably know, uh, <laughs> especially boys were playing this game like crazy. And so he wanted a new monitor, and so we bought him a Dell monitor for Christmas. That's that's what he wanted for his Christmas present. It was a nice LCD monitor, you know, little, being like a little bit bigger than a normal computer screen, so he could see everything. And so we bought that for him. He was very excited and. In February of 2020, this is right before COVID really started hitting, uh, going deep. He was playing it, and you know, like a lot of kids that I've seen from Fortnite, he got mad at the game. I used to get mad at games, but he got mad at the game. And he threw his controller down, and the controller bounced off the desk and hit the LCD monitor. And, and if you've ever cracked an LCD monitor, you know, there's really no way to fix it. One little crack can cause the whole thing to sort of disrupt, right? All the little crystals or whatever's in there, chemicals or whatever, and so. um, he came down. He comes down and tell me, tells me me in February, and I was and I was like, "Dude, well, you're not getting another one." And you know, I don't care about the monitor, but I do care how you react to it. And you can't can't get mad at these games, man. This is ridiculous. We're gonna take a pause from this thing, and so we did. And then COVID happened, and then they shut down the schools, and they didn't see his friends. And then we, I mean, look, there the media fueled fear that I was a part of as well. We were. I was scared of. The DoorDash guy. I wouldn't let my kids go jump on the trampoline. I didn't know. This was a zombie apocalypse or what was going on. And so I could see he was—he re- didn't really have anything to do. I mean, our school hadn't really got any kind of online schooling. They were just starting to try to do some online schooling, but it was awful. I mean, he hated it. And so we're like, all right, we'll buy you a new monitor. My wife did. And she bought him a new little cheapo monitor on uh, Amazon. Just like so they had something to do. And... On April 17, 2020, it was a beautiful sunny day. My uh, water well in my house broke. And I called my dad and said, hey, man, my water well broke. Did you come over? And I hadn't seen my dad since COVID. Really, he, Even though he, we kept working at Linear Labs, I didn't allow him to go in because he'd had a heart attack a couple of years before. I was like, i would just stay at home. I don't need you in. And so he comes over, and me, him, and Aiden worked on that water well, and it was a great time. and. It took us like three hours, and, and we go inside, and um, I had to take a phone call, so I kiss Hayden on the head, and I go take a quick phone call, and my dad had to go, so he left. My wife took my oldest daughter to go pick up a friend of hers, my, 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 little, my oldest daughter. We kind of were feeling, all right, this whole lockdown thing is kind of getting ridiculous. Let's have some of these kids need some sort of social life, and so we found a parent who was willing to let their daughter come over, so my wife was going to go pick her up. And my son's birthday was in four days. And we said, look, you can't have a birthday party because of COVID, but we'll only have one friend if the parent will allow it. We had a kid who was gonna come over in four days, and my son was real excited he was gonna get a new controller for his Xbox and they were gonna be able to play and hang out. And and so he was really looking forward to that. And so I kissed him on the head and he goes upstairs and I took this quick little thirty minute phone call, in the middle of the day, and walked out of my office and my uh 8 year old daughter
1: came downstairs she was still at home and said Hayden and hung himself and I just I just I was, I was like what I ran upstairs and and I pulled him down and tried to administer uh, CPR and um, uh, couldn't save him poor little daughter I tried to keep her away from him as much as
0: another kid and, and I actually had an AED at the house, an electronic, an automatic electronic defibrillator. I bought it on Amazon a couple of years before. And she ran down and got it. And I tried to get it to work. And we couldn't get, a, get it to work. And immediate aftermath for, for a couple of days. We just didn't know how, where it came from. We were total shock, total shock. So it was normal, went through a cell phone, you know, no indications of anything like this. Just why would he do that? I was just with him. You know, what? You know, you're happy. What? It doesn't make any sense. And we didn't really talk to my daughter much about it because of you know what she had seen. And she didn't see me a lot of what I tried. She saw some of me trying to save him because I needed to get my cell phone. She'd go run back and forth. And I'd sit her outside to the neighbors to go wait for the uh the ambulance to come. And slowly we pieced it together that he had uh somehow got mad at the game and accidentally broke his monitor again. And in that you know, rash of emotion and I was scared to get in trouble and just mad at himself and all those things. You know, he made the made the decision he made. And
1: you know, part of me thinks, and I know my son did not want to die. I know my son was mad, he was impulsive. And you know, through this experience, I've man, when your kid dies. You know, I guess one way you can go is you can just go with them, and there's a lot of parents that do that, and,
0: or just drink yourself to death, or take opioids or Xanax to death, you know, yourself, and just keep stay numb. I went on a path of trying to figure out what the heck, why would someone do this? How does? What does it mean? I, I didn't. I didn't know anything about suicide. Frankly, I was. Uh, if you had asked me pre-Hayden what suicide was, I'd have been judgmental. I'd have been selfish person, drug addict, or crazy. That would have. That would have been my perception. And what I've learned is that's just so far from the truth, and not accurate in one ounce of data and so what we've realized in youth, by the way, youth suicide is the second leading cause of death in kids ten to fourteen, and up until the fentanyl issue, which has been exploding as well it's an it's an awful, horrible thing too. It was the second leading cause of death all the way up to ten to thirty four year olds and so like, wow, I didn't know. The second most likely way my kids could die was they take their life. So why is that? And when you look at the data, uh, you know, about 50% of all youth suicide is impulsive. Um, and about 55% of them had no previous medical health diagnosis, meaning there, were, there, was, they, they, there was at least no diagnosed depression, anxiety, or anything like that. Um, and in the impulsive suicides, when you look at them, they, they tend to have a couple of categories and you know one of us you know, i've heard many many times they broke something that's not unusual um another common one i hear is i broke up with my girlfriend or boyfriend to make an impulsive decision to do it another common one i hear is i got bullied at school
1: very common and i decided to kill myself and another common one is i got in a fight with my parent and i did it impulsively. and
0: you said so then you'll sit back and say why would a kid impulsively do that? something wrong with them or whatever and and part of part of it's physiological meaning where they are in the development so the prefrontal cortex which is where we make rational decision making is not fully developed until you're about 24 25 years old and youth kids tend to make decisions um with the amygdala part of our brain which which is the fire flight system um if you ever seen a kid who was tired. And impulsive and cranky, you know. A lot of times it's a fight or flight decision making. And when you make a decision with your amygdala, which we all do, still, you, you tend to black out. Now you don't literally black out, but it's almost like a you turn almost into a robot and you make a decision without you really even thinking. An example: I tell people is if my wife says something to me and I go back and I go, "Why do you? What do you want?" Something really curt, and then if I roll it back and I'm like, "Why did I?" I don't ever act like that. It's it's a it's an automatic amygdala fight or flight type of a response, and kids do that much more often than adults because they just don't have the tools. They certainly don't have the life experience to know that things will be okay, and so that's part of it. The other part of it, I believe, and this is where you know things are different. In about in two thousand eight two thousand seven, we saw the iPhone come out. We saw the rise of social media. Think of Instagrams and Facebooks and TikTok type things. And these highly engaging, immersive, it's probably the right word, video games on Xbox and PlayStation came out where you could interact with headphones and these almost go into a world that's outside of reality, right? That really started happening in those years. And that's, in my opinion, directly correlated to what we saw in those years of a spike in in youth mental health, report depression, anxiety, ADHD, or um, OCD, things like this all happening at the same time. And so my belief is a lot of what we're seeing in this wave of kids suffering is because of this. And so I, and I hear it a lot, you know, people say, well, these kids are just not made like they used to, or they're not tough. And you know, people in the old days were tough. It's just One, if that's, if that's the case, then we made them like that. So I don't want to blame about ourselves. But two, it's just, it's just nonsense. There's nothing physiologically different than this generation than we were. I mean, from a, from a DNA, from a chemicals, they're not, there's not some mass issue with this group. I believe that this, this is a big part of it.
1: And then there's, there's,
0: it's more complicated than that, but I, mean, I do believe that it's a big part of it. Here's why. Here's what the data shows. There's a chemical in the brain called dopamine that is basically our motivation chemical. And we know, and it's black and white from the data, that these type of activities cause spikes in dopamine. Think about it like this. If I look at a TikTok video for 10 seconds and I laugh, I got a little spike of dopamine. Now I go to the next TikTok video and I laugh, spike of dopamine. Next TikTok video, spike of dopamine. And so you're just constantly getting these dopamine hits I man. this industry nice to be a part of it calls it engagement quotes engagement well what, what does engagement mean? Engagement really mean, basically means like I keep giving you dopamine hits to keep you in the app or I get you back into the app um, that's what that means and the problem with consistent spikes in dopamine is it lowers what's called our baseline dopamine or our average dopamine and the problem with Average, your average dopamine going down, which again is the motivation chemical, is it's really hard to raise back up. And so think of it, it kind of it kind of pleats and it kind of fluctuates, but it goes down. It takes time for that to go back up. And when your dopamine is down, and lots of things can cause the dopamine to go down. But when dopamine's down, what what is that in kids? What does that look? What does that look like? It looks like depression. It looks like anxiety. It looks like impulsiveness. It looks like um, ADHD. Things like that. They've done um, neural imaging, MRI scans of people's brains and kids who are who play these things a lot. And, you know, neurochemically, it looks just like a crack cocaine addict. So these things are highly addictive. And again, I'm overgeneralizing every kid because some kids, there's a lot of benefits to these things. Um, like anything, there's a, a light and a, and a shadow, but a lot of kids suffer. We use a video game as an example. And Hayden, this is probably part of what happened. You play a video game. You're now you're kind of addicted to it. You want to play it a lot. So, what what kind of behaviors manifest itself? Well, you're on there a lot. You're probably not eating well. You're eating a bunch of crap food that you found in your pantry. You're staying up late. So now you're not getting good sleep, which we know is absolutely critical to mental health. And so you get this compounding effect that happens in someone's mental health. At the end of it, you I've never heard anybody say this, but I've been saying it, which is I think as you do these things. You increase what someone's suicide risk factor is. Everybody, everybody, my argument, has a suicide risk factor. I don't care how great you are. I can in the right circumstances, you can be broken and to kill yourself. I believe with all my heart. Now, now that's but your risk factor might be low, but in a different set of circumstances, I can raise your risk factor and eventually break you. I mean, look at what CIA agents have done to people for years and kept in prisoner camps and stuff. You can be broken. And so it's not like these people, so these people are not people that we should shame or look down upon. No one wants to die. They want to escape pain, even if it's temporary and an impulse, it's a pain thing. No one wants to die. And I know that, I know that the, the data supports that and suicide surviving individuals support that. There was a guy named Kevin Hines, who I get to know. He jumped off the Golden Gate Bridge, trying to kill himself. And he told me the second he let go, he wish he had never made that decision. I've heard that from a lot of people, and so you know, stuff is it's super complicated, and there's no right answer. But I do believe part of it is, is foundational in habits. And in Hayden, you know, was playing video games more. I mean, we know it, he wouldn't stand up all night, but he was doing it more. And I think that was part of it. Um, wasn't eating right. He wasn't getting exercise. Wasn't getting sunlight. We increased his
1: risk factor. And what worries me about the pandemic and the shutdown is the results of that
0: decision may not manifest itself for a very long time. And let me give you an example. If the shutdown happened caused you to have a a set of negative behaviors like that, then now you go back to school and you're still addicted to this game. Now you're addicted to this game or more so to TikTok. You don't study as much. You get what's a cascading effect on your life that can manifest itself potentially over your lifetime. And in psychology, there's a term called reciprocal narrowing of optionality. And that's what's basically happening, meaning your options get worse based on decisions. A lot of psychologists call addiction a learned behavior on the same concept. So an example would be if I drink a beer right now, suddenly and I get a little drunk. My options for making good decisions got a little worse, right? And if I drink a lot of beers, I get hungover. Then I'm hungover. I wake up the next day. I go to work. I'm hungover at work. And so I don't perform as well, which causes me more anxiety. And so what do I do that next night? I drink again to make the anxiety go away, and I make it worse. And you get a compounding effect, get narrowing, reciprocal narrowing of optionality to where I keep doing that, keep doing that to, to make it go away. And then I end up in a bad place, and then I become becomes risky, come at risk. And so I worry about that's what's happened to this generation. And, and, and the good news, the good news is, my belief is, you can undo that. And so much of that is about just really getting back to good, solid behaviors. And then and, and adults are just as
1: guilty of this as kids.
3: Everything you're saying about Hayden, I think to a certain degree, we see that with our classmates. That dopamine hit. Whether it's by an electronic device, a video game, clicks on social media, you have a similar hit when you're overseas. The tension and the fear involved with being overseas at war, it gives you that rush. And I think similar to what your son had starting and developing, we see it in our classmates quite a bit. And when you stop getting that rush, what do you do to replace it? What do you do to get out of that deep, deep hole?
1: Yeah, obviously, our classmates, you know, have taken their lives and
0: suffered from some of this stuff. Has been near and dear to my heart, and you know, I do think, my opinion, and I'm not been I'm not a doctor, just to be clear. I'm just talked to millions of not to, tons of experts and in this world, you know, asking a lot of questions and reading everything I can read, but. You know, I think there's a couple of different ways to slice this. That some of this stuff can overlap, some of the stuff might be different. I do think a set of circumstances where you're making decisions or your indecisions, where your dopamine is constantly being spiked and then lowered, it, it does change you physiologically. And so, that is no doubt something that, that is true. Um, And that could be, like you mentioned, at war, it could be playing a video game, obviously very, very different things, but I would suspect similar chemically. Now, I would put a bucket that is different, which would be trauma and PTSD, even in in a little bit different category. So so let me explain how I think about those two things differently. As it relates to restoring dopamine and trying trying to restore healthy habits, you know, when Hayden died, I had PTSD, I'll talk about that in a moment. But, you know, I do believe, and I've, and I've seen it for people who are suffering from depression, anxiety, um, whatever it may be. One way to really, and it's, this is hard, but that really helps is good foundational habits. And there's a guy that I follow that I recommend anybody check him out on uh, YouTube called Andrew Huberman. I think it's called the Huberman Labs. He's got a podcast. He's a neurobiologist or scientist of some sort out of Stanford. He's phenomenal. He's actually got an episode on dopamine, is the best one to start with. You should all listen to. But then he got he's just does tons of great interviews and just really good tips on how to sort of improve your well-being. And a lot of it is real stuff that's obvious, right? Get exercise, get sleep. I mean, <laughs> number 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 one, number two, whichever way you want to put it, eat right, right? That stuff you can't don't discount how important that that is. And then you've got. Things like making sure you get sunlight. He talks about actually getting sunlight early in the morning when it's at about ten degree angle, staring at the, not at the sun, but in the sun's direction for two, three minutes, and doing the same thing in the evening really helps your sleep. And he goes into why that is. He talks about things like breath work, which is which I actually do Wim Hof breathing daily. There's a YouTube video you can follow him. But we know that increasing going through these breath work exercises. Helps you a lot in terms of lowering your delta waves and sort of lowering your things called the parasynthetic nervous system, kind of taking the edge off, if you will. I do it every morning. I try to do it every night. And then there's another one that I do, which is, which sounds weird, but doing cold showers and ice baths. One of the ways, one of the few ways we know to naturally increase dopamine is through a cold shower or an ice bath. And they are not fun. I hate I do it every morning. And I hate it before I do it every morning. But I feel great afterward. And it increases your dopamine for three to four hours. So there's a lot, I believe, of these natural ways that can just good life skills that are good for you or your, or your kids that are, there, that are just, you can't discount that stuff. And that's like, to me, it's like more than half the battle right there. But when you get beyond that and it's still not working, that's when things like counseling is so important. You know, when Hayden died, I I developed really bad PTSD. I was having nightmares, what I saw. And I wish it on no man. I know a lot of our classmates have seen awful things too, Um, worse than I've seen probably. But I had my, you know, that was my experience. And I was having nightmares. I mean, just the most horrific. I, I hated going to sleep, I was scared to go to sleep. I would have my anxiety would be crazy at night. I mean, just off the charts for no reason. It's anxiety, and then I'd go to bed, and then I'd, I'd have a nightmare of Hayden. And they were the most not what happened. It was it was worse stuff in some like, ways. I had a nightmare over and over of him on a on a stake through his chest, screaming and writhing in pain. Things like that. That were just like what the heck? Classic kind of PTSD. And so, first step for me was to go to counseling and you know a lot of people call it a shrink or people there's a negative connotation man what nonsense counseling is awesome i still go today i tell anybody do everybody everybody in the world should go to counseling and we used to call counseling by the way we used to get counseling from our grandmother or a great coach or a great mentor we're losing a lot of that in society because we're all on our phones right so that's going away but dude, formalized counseling is a good thing. And I, go, I happen to go to a biblical counselor. Um, I happen to believe, you know, we're just science with sort of what scripture and gospel says, you know, God's love for hope. I think it was beautiful. And I have really enjoyed it. But counseling, we know for a fact, can be very helpful. And we know when we talk about these things, science is clear. The, the good counseling session usually involves this, the counselor listening. And you talking it's kind of what, what my experience and what i've heard what i've seen the data that that's what a good counseling session looks like you talking about this actually there's something changes inside you and you actually in some ways figure it out and start healing yourself guided by a professional it's very very powerful a lot of people say well i don't get along with the counselor and the, or what kind of counselor should i use and what kind of techniques the number the top 10 Indicators of a successful counseling session, or the determining factors of a successful counseling session: number one is the relationship with the counselor. Number two is the relationship with the counselor. Number three is the relationship with the counselor. And the four, all the way ten, it's all about that relationship with the, the individual. If someone you who you trust and you feel like has your best interest at heart, so that you're willing to open up on, your counseling session will be successful, and it's so 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 powerful. And to me, between good financial habits and that, you can solve almost a lot of these problems. Now, particularly things around just classic depression and anxiety. Now, let's transition a little bit to, to true PTSD. Those things are a little bit more complicated, right? These are learned responses in the body and the brain that are, that are much more difficult to work through. And again, I'm not an expert on this. There are Andrew Hewitt has got a great episode on PTSD, by the way. But I found things, obviously, counseling was a part of that. Good financial habits was a part of that. And look, if I go out drinking all night, I suffer. And my things come back and things will creep back into my life. You know, so the good financial habits are important. Obviously, counseling. And then, but I, I also do a thing called IASIS, I A S I S. It's low voltage. Stimulation to the brain. It's called transcranial direct current stimulation. You can't feel it, but it lowers your delta waves. I usually do it before I go into a counseling session. I A S I S. They have them all across the country. And I found that was really helpful. It takes the edge off. And in fact, when we have a suicidal kid, what we try what I try to do, we kinda of get a little program where we try to get him into my my counselor. We do a set of, we do ISIS treatment on them and then they go into counseling. Not just something you should research or check out for yourself. You know, there's a um, There's things like EMDR, which people may be aware of, it takes longer. And then there's all the new stuff that's coming out. And and, you know, some of the stuff's super controversial, like the psychedelic movement that's happening. But man, some of that stuff works. If you're at the point of, you know, you're you're giving up, why not try that? You got nothing to lose. There are all kinds of interesting data around ketamine treatments and to be able to a lot of military guys go do ayahuasca. There's things like this magic mushroom stuff, which again, that, which is a phase three trials, showing some positive sign. I'm saying it's for everybody, and I do not believe it will heal you outright. For those at the edge of the uh, edge of the cliff, maybe it takes takes the edge off and allows you to start your healing and through some of these other means. So, I, I would encourage anybody who's really suffering to go research that stuff, and I think I think it
3: helps. I think it's uh, apropos. Our class is known as the class of, of lightning and thunder. And we have a thunderstorm in the background. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I appreciate your words today, Brad. I know so many of us look up to the, the risks you've taken, not only in your, your business career, but in your personal career. And it, it takes a lot of strength to reach out and communicate uh, and share your story. So I appreciate you sharing today.
0: You know, it's my, my honor. And if I could just say my one thing in closing is, as a person who
1: has been on the other side of suicide, and to all our classmates, and I know how bad you're hurting, if you are, but believe me, man, it's not the answer. All you're doing is passing the pain on to somebody else. When Greg took his life, Gallup, you
0: know, we were trying to get him help, and, and I was mentioning to you before we got on the recording, I got sent the video what he did moments after it happened and i just dropped the phone and was just in shock and it's just not the answer there are solutions and even if the the va solution is not working for you traditional pharmaceuticals are not working for you we got more solutions let's keep going because it's not the answer man it's it just sits off a nuclear bomb to everybody else and I got to live with it for the rest of my life now. And again, it's my fault of my son. I love him to death. And I, and I, and I'm not blaming my son. I'm not, I'm even, I blame nobody more than I blame myself. It's just not the answer. And so, and if anybody's interested in some of these more latest research or I know knows a classmate, reach out to me. I know a lot about this world. I got lots of connections in all these different, all these different areas from experts, top of the tier across all of it from the ayahuasca all the way to traditional counseling so i mean i, I know all these people i can get you i can get people to resources um, so please please reach out to me and the last thing i'll say for those who have kids we made a movie called almost 13 shortly after hayden died i came we start using this phrase called conversations matter and the reason we use that phrase is we believe that speaking with your kid about self-harm is very important. What the experts say is by talking to your kid about self-harm, you cannot cause them to kill themselves. That's a a common misperception. They're gonna find out about it one way or another. One way could be TikTok, one way could be a friend, One could be Hollywood, or they can find it about it from you in a very controlled and a very measured and loving and kind way. If you watch the movie, we talk a little bit about how to have that conversation safely with your child. And the experts say you need to even start talking to them as young as eight about at least feelings. And, and I'll leave you with this because the conversation goes a little bit like this. You sit your kid down and you say, Have you ever thought about harming yourself? And you use the word suicide. Have you ever thought about suicide? Do you know what that is? Uh, particularly if they're, if they're you know, 10, 11, 12, 13.
1: I think you can use that word. And depending on what they say, The the response is pretty much, look, no matter what happens, there's
0: nothing in this world that I would ever want you to do, nothing you could do that we would want want you to harm yourself. And my expectation, keyword, my expectation is that when someone hurts you or you feel bad or you you ever have those thoughts, I mean, I want you to come tell me. Because there's nothing in this world that we can't fix. If I know about it. And if I don't know about it, I can't help you fix it. And then if, heaven forbid, I'm not around, I want you to tell another trusted adult, a teacher, a grandparent or something. You know, Maybe you're, I'm not around. You can't tell them. That's okay. Tell, tell somebody. I want you to tell somebody that's okay. I got your back no matter what. And then if you are alone, heaven forbid, and you have those thoughts, what can we do? What else can we do in that moment besides you know, hurting ourselves? And you get them talking about some people call it a happiness plan but you say you know what what else what can we do to soothe or calm yourself in that moment so you can get help and you actually try to get them talking about it because what our belief is and what the data shows is by having that conversation it's sort of like creating a plan if you will you're creating some neural connections in the brain you're role playing so that when it happens Maybe they have something to fall back to that conversation. Maybe they can follow that little piece of light and make a, make a de- decision different than Hayden did. And then last thing I'll say, I had a, I had a, I'll give you an example. I had a guy reach out to me after our video went viral. I like think 100 million people, 150 million people, something crazy watched it. He wrote me. I didn't know the guy. And he said, hey, Brad, because of your video, I sat down and talked to my daughter about self-harm. And I found out she was cutting herself, and she was thinking about suicide, and I had no idea. But I sat down with her because of your video, so thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And I wrote him back, and I said, man, that's great. glad you guys are talking now. It's fantastic. Open mind, feelings, communications is, how you, is the first step in solving this, right? And then he wrote me again a couple months later, and he said, Brad, I got to tell you, my daughter tried to kill herself. And I was like, what? And he goes, yeah, she's in the, she's in the ICU. She's in a coma. Full organ failure. She's been unconscious for six days. We don't think she's gonna make it. And I was just like, oh my God, I couldn't believe it. And so I prayed and, you know, I was hating to go and to Jesus or whatever. Through the miracle of modern medicine or prayer and all of the above, this young lady survived, right? With no, no, no physical long-term damage. Uh, a little tough road ahead of her, no doubt, but no physical long-term damage. And he writes me. Shortly thereafter, and he said, Brad, and he actually just wanted to talk to him on the phone. So he calls me, he says, Brad, I want to call you. I'm going to call you this time and just tell you personally, I want to thank you for saving my daughter's life. And I said, man, I, um, I appreciate that, but I didn't save your daughter's life. But that's very kind of you to say that. He goes, no, 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 no. Let me tell you what, what I didn't tell you before. What I didn't tell you is my daughter came
1: down the stairs and uh, at the last second said, Daddy, I did something wrong. And she went unconscious and went into a seizure. when he told me and he what he believes is had he not been having those conversations with her, she wouldn't have came and told him and so and that that that, that same thing conversations matter extends to, to all of us as classmates and adults man we,
0: I know we we're, we're, we're getting after it as a class. I see you guys everybody working together,
1: tell somebody, talk to your kids about it, and you know life is beautiful man i've been through this. In the ashes of all this tragedy,
0: I've seen so much beauty come out of come out of this. And if there's any more beauty that can come out of through my story to help you or help your kid, you know, and that just would be my my, my greatest honor and, and privilege. And man, there's hope. Reach out to me, man. There's solutions. There's a lot of exciting solutions. You don't have to suffer in pain. Um, we don't have to suffer alone, man. So, Joseph, thank you, man, for inviting me, my friend.
3: Brad, thank you for sharing your story today. And uh, I just hope that all our classmates get the opportunity to hear this. Awesome. Love you all. Thank you, brother.
2: Have a good day. Thank you for listening to Through the Gray. If you like this episode, please give us five stars and follow our podcast. It helps us gain visibility and helps us share our stories.